Good morning. I hope that you are uh, once again turned already to Galatians chapter 2. If you haven't, please join me there. We'll pick up where we left off last week, which is verse 15. We'll be looking only at two verses this morning, verses 15 and 16 of Galatians chapter 2. We should quickly remind ourselves of some of the things that, uh, that Paul brought to our attention last week. Uh, he made clear for us some, some things that ought to be very important for us in our Christian walk. It is very important, he said, that the freedom that we have in Christ and the unity that we have in Christ be preserved and be lived out by God's people. He brought this up last week in the context of Peter's failings uh, there with that baby church in Antioch. Peter failed in these things, and he failed out of, a, uh, out of an effort for peace. Peace is a good thing. We want peace. We love peace. What we saw last week is that if the cost of that peace is to tear, uh, to tear apart what God has joined together, that cost is simply too high of a cost. And in that case, what we have to do is we have to be willing to deal with the conflict that comes in such situations because we are determined to live lives in accord with the truth. Let me pause quickly and just ask you, are you able to hear me right now? I feel like I'm not uh, hearing myself. We could maybe turn it up just a little bit. Thank you, guys. Um, so we come this morning to verses 15 and 16. He's still in the midst of what he began last week. Now, we have something of a head-scratching situation to start off our morning. So that'll wake us up a little bit. Thankfully, it's not that big of a deal, as we'll see, but it is interesting. And it affects the way that I'm going to talk about the word we here. Paul is going to say we a couple of times. The question is, who is he talking about? Has Paul now stopped quoting his conversation with Peter? That's what he was doing last week. Has he stopped quoting himself? And has he turned back now to address the Galatians directly? Uh, or is he still quoting what he said to Peter? And we have a great difficulty understanding just exactly which one of those it is. Because there's no quotation marks in the original that, uh, that Paul wrote down. So we have to judge where do we mark the end quotation mark. I've seen two commentators who think that Paul's words to Peter ended at the end of verse 14 last week. Uh, one, namely John Calvin, thinks that the, his words to Peter end at the end of our passage this morning, at the end of verse 16. And I've seen three who think that he's still talking to Peter all the way through to the end of verse 21, the end of the whole chapter. And depending on what uh, version of the Bible you have in your hands, they have to take sides on this because they have to decide where to mark the words. And so the ESV marks it as if he's done talking to Peter at the end of verse 14. The New American Standard Bible has him quoting himself all the way through the end of the chapter. So that's why you may run into... Uh, some differences there. The point that he's making is the same either way. It makes no difference as far as what he's describing. He is talking about the situation of Jews, believing Jews, in light of what's happened now with the Messiah having come. 
I'm going to be taking him to be still recounting his words to Peter here. And that's why I take this time, because at some points I'm going to say Paul and Peter in reference to the we, and now you know why I'm saying that. You also know that it might be he's just talking about believing Jews in general. But if he's talking to Peter directly, the two of them represent the believing Jews, so it comes out to the same thing. Now, with that out of the way, uh, let's begin by reading the text this morning. And what I'd like us to do is to read from verse 15 down to the end of verse 21. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul continues in this way. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our text this morning is simply two verses, but it's no simple task to walk through these. They are densely packed. One man said, we arrive in verses 15 and 16 at perhaps the most significant text in Galatians. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that exactly, but he said that because what Paul's going to do here is he's going to summarize his entire gospel message right here in these two verses. This is significant. And it, it, it takes quite a bit for us to unpack this because he's talking about three concepts in particular here. This is what we'll work through in looking at verses 15 and 16 this morning. And each of these require us to take some time to think carefully. He's going to say something important in verse 15 about Jews. He's going to say two important things in verse 16 that, that really represent very big ideas and ideas that are crucial for the rest of the letter to the Galatians. He's going to say things that we have to consider about justification. Here's the second thing we'll look at. The first is what he says about the Jews. The second is what he says about justification. And the third is, is what he's going to say about what he calls the law. The law is going to quickly become one of the main matters we're going to hear from Paul about in this letter. And this is the first time it comes in, so we need to begin really understanding what is in his mind as he speaks in this way. The first thing we see comes in verse 15. He continues reasoning and exhorting Peter, I think, in this way. He says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Peter, we both are Jews by birth. We are not Gentile sinners. Now that's an interesting contrast for him to make there. 
I hope it's clear to you from the beginning, he's not at all saying that as Jews, they are not sinners. He's not denying his status as a sinner. But he is clearly starting this first off with an acknowledgement of something very important. And that is that there has been, up to this point in redemptive history, up to the arrival of the Messiah and the finished work that Christ has now worked, there has been, up to this point in redemptive history, a difference between Jews and Gentiles. We are so accustomed, perhaps, at times, to speaking on this side of, of things, to speaking in light of Paul's words, of there being now neither Jew nor Gentile, that it's very easy for us to fail to appreciate the reality he's pointing to here. It's something he points to in a lot of places. He makes this point in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, for example. He's just finished talking about circumcision and about the fact that circumcision has no salvific benefits to it. But then he asks this question in Romans 3.1. He says, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? We might be in a place where we would expect him to say that the answer is none. Because after all, he just said that there's no salvific significance to the act of circumcision or, or non-circumcision. But that's not how he answers the question. What advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? His answer was, great in every respect. Belonging to God in the way that the Jews did in the Old Covenant, and that was an entrance into a real relationship with God, a covenantal relationship. Belonging to God through the Old Covenant had its advantages. Circumcision, which marked one's entrance into that covenant, was an advantage to them. It had no effect on an individual's standing before God in his courtroom, but in this life it put one in an advantageous situation. He continues there in Romans 3 to explain what he means. He says, first of all, and he means foremost of all, now, first of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is how he describes it there. The Jews had God's words. They had his commands. They had his prophets. And they had those things in a way that the Gentile nations did not. We see the same acknowledgement in Ephesians 2, verse 12. We'll, we'll go here in, here in a few minutes, but you can just listen to this now. He says the same thing, but now he's addressing the Gentiles and not the Jews. Listen to how he describes this to Gentiles. He's asking them to remember their status before Christ came. And this is what he says to them. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that's quite a statement. And those are things that he's saying that are true of Gentiles in a way that it is not true to say regarding Jews. There's a difference between them. And that difference mostly came in the way of knowledge, in the way of revelation. We, he says, Paul the Jew, we had been given the words of God in a unique way. And yet, he says to Peter here, and yet, what is the conclusion that we Jews have come to. He says, we are Jews, look back at the verse here, we are Jews and not Gentile sinners, yet, verse 16, 
yet we know something. This is something that the typical Jew, the unbelieving Jew, has not come to understand. But Paul and Peter have. Believing Jews have come to understand something. What is that thing? What have they come to know? And this leads us coming into verse 16 now to the second big topic that he begins to broach here. Look at how he finishes that statement in verse 16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what we know now is we know something about the nature of justification. Now, when we need to understand, when we raise that term, the term justification, we're stepping into a courtroom setting. The, the, the question is, how can I receive a positive declaration from God on the day of judgment? This is at the heart of what he was saying in Romans chapter 2 that I just read. Let me ask you now to turn there for just a moment. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Because this is very, I think, helpful to see the language that he's using and to see there's a parallel that he brings up here. As I read Romans 2, verses 12 and 13, notice how he relates the idea of being judged with this concept of being justified. You'll hear that there early in what I read. And then there's a parallel at the end of verse 13 that we, we need to see. He wrote this. He said, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So this is a matter of judgment. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, do you, do you see the parallel that he gives there in verse 13? It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Who is it that's righteous before God? It's the doers of the law who are righteous before God. But in speaking about that righteousness, he interchanges it with another phrase. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. You hear that? Justification is a matter of righteousness before the throne of God. What does it mean to be justified? Well, it means to be declared righteous before God. And when it comes to the matter of actually finding justification before the throne, Paul says, we have come to understand that a person is justified through faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. Now, I think you can tell, even by the way that Paul words this here, in verse 16, that this is not the conclusion that average Joe Israelite had come to. They had, of course, known the advantages of being a Jew that Paul wrote about uh, in the book of Romans. They had known that theirs as Jews, theirs were the promises, as he writes in Romans chapter 9. But average Joe Israelite had a problem, a big problem. Average Joe Israelite has come to think that being under the law did more than just give him access to God's promises. He has come to think that being under the law actually affected the promised justification. That it was the means of justification. 
How can I be justified in God's sight? Well, be a faithful member of the law covenant. That's how. So Paul says here that now, for him, for believing Jews, having come to know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, he says, they too, faithful Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because, he's saying here, we have come to understand that by works of the law no one will be justified. Now it's, it's worth mentioning at this point that those works of the law, those works that the law required, were not bad things, were they? They were good things. We're focusing on things like circumcision here lately, uh, this, this work that marks entrance into the covenant community. But the law required many other good things too, didn't it? The law, uh, how about the Ten Commandments? Is that, are those good things? The Ten Commandments are sort of the culmination of the Mosaic Covenant law. And they're very good. In fact, we're still commanded to do things like worship God only, not lie, not commit adultery, not bear false witness. Those are still uh, moral requirements that God's people have. They're not bad things. But the point is this, doing those works of the law, doing those things that the law required, did not earn anybody justification before the Lord. And before we move on to the third focus here, which will be the law specifically, we need to mention one application of this today. It's not an issue that we hear as much about lately, but it's still an issue that is significant for us. This is hitting at the heart of the Protestant Roman Catholic understanding of justification. We're, we're speaking in these things as we talk about them, we're talking about the heart of the Protestant Reformation. So we ought not mention this without bringing that to our attention once again. Let me just read to you, I think I've done this before in years past, but let me read to you the, uh, the standing uh, way of understanding this uh, that the Roman Catholic Church would, would, um, would, would give to its people. This is coming from the Council of Trent. Still never repudiated. In fact, it can't be because this is, uh, this is a church council. Here's what they say regarding justification. Listen to the language. As regards those who, by sin, have fallen from the received grace of justification, they may again be justified when God exciting them through the sacrament of penance they shall have attained to the recovery by the merit of Christ of the grace lost. Justification is a grace given that may be lost through sin, but thankfully may be regained again if I properly work the works of penance. This is what is explicitly repudiated by Paul here. When he talks about the works of the law, he's not simply talking about something that is Jewish for the sake of being Jewish. And it's very clear in the way he describes this in the book of Romans. He's talking about two different systems of approaching justification. One system coming to seek justification before God but through faith in the finished work of Christ. And the other system, a system of working through our good deeds to merit our justification. 
This is why he'll say something very similar in Romans chapter 4, and he'll speak of that type of person in these ways. He says, he speaks of the one who works as trying to receive what is owed to him. And he says definitively in Romans 4, 5, that the one who approaches God through his working is not credited righteousness. Rather, it is the one who does not work, but believes upon the God who justifies the ungodly. To him, his faith, he says, is credited to him as righteousness. It's a very important distinction that we cannot let uh, fly under the radar. We have to understand uh, the, the, what is at stake in this particular understanding of justification. Now, let's stay on this topic, but let's add in what is the third element that Paul is bringing up here now in verse 16. In order to understand what Paul's going to be saying here this morning and going forward, you need to understand that when he speaks of the works of the law, you see what he said there in verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. When you hear him speak of the law in this way, you, you need to have in your mind a mental image of the entire Mosaic covenant itself. He's going to use the word law as shorthand for the law covenant in the way that he's talking, which of course includes the things commanded in that covenant, but it is not limited to particular works commanded by the law covenant. It's not limited to circumcision, for example. It's talking about the Mosaic covenant as a whole. Now, some, sometimes this can be misunderstood. Sometimes it can be assumed that when he talks about the works of the law, that he's speaking in particular about moral requirements found in God's commandments. That's one way that this can be taken differently. I think that that's, uh, that that's a mistake, and I think that what he says in verse 19 bears that out. Look at what he says in verse 19 of this chapter. He says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. How could Paul in any sense die to the eternal moral requirements of God? What would that mean? What would that even look like? He, he, no, he's dying, and we'll see this next week in particular. He's dying in a way that releases him from the covenant obligations he's under. When he brings this up in the book of Romans, he's going to compare it to marriage, the marriage covenant. It's just like a married person is released from their marriage covenant when their spouse dies. You can also tell that he's using the word law to refer to a covenant, among other places, from Galatians 3.17. You might just peek over there for a moment. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. Anytime Paul says something like that, we just stop and give a silent prayer of thanks. Thank you, God, for moving Paul to to come here and to lay out a clarification. Peter said that Paul's writings in many places are hard to understand. So I'm thankful that Paul would come here and say, this is what I mean. Let me, let me uh, put this very simply for you, what we've been talking about. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. He's speaking about covenants. He was just talking about the Abrahamic covenant. What came 430 years after Abraham? Mount Sinai did. 
the ratifying of the Mosaic Covenant. This is what he means when he talks about the law. He's talking about the coming of a particular covenant. And he says here in verse 16, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law. Now if the law is a sort of shorthand for the law covenant, then works of the law simply means everything that that covenant required. And so we find him saying here, not just belonging to the Mosaic Covenant, but even if I was keeping the commands within that covenant, that did not bring justification. Being an obedient Jew under the Mosaic Covenant, even if you could keep all of those commands, which you couldn't, the covenant was not offering you justification. If the law covenant did not save in this way, well then what did it do? What did it do for the Jew? And you could say that everything else that we see this morning will serve to answer that question. Those who were Jews prior to the coming of Christ, those who had the law, what did it do for them? There's a number of things that we would say to answer that. The law did what Paul's going to say it did in, in chapter 3, verse 22. The law shut up everyone under sin. It convicted of sin. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So that's one thing that the law did for God's people. And my friends, I would just slip in here a, a comment regarding the relevance of that to you this morning. You are probably not sitting here and being tempted to go submit yourself to the Mosaic Covenant today. But I say to you, if you are thinking of your standing before God as coming down to your own works, you're committing the very same error that's being brought up before us in these passages. And in that way, the mistake that he's talking about here goes beyond the Mosaic Covenant itself. Any unwillingness to be satisfied with the term of the New Covenant, any refusal to rest in Christ by faith, leads to the same place. We have to be mindful of the way that this might warn us today in our own context. But let's continue with the question, what did the law do for them? Well, in, in exposing our sin, in exposing the sin of God's people, the law drove them toward despair of righteousness. It did this all by itself as they tried over and over to keep the law, and it became this wall that they kept running their head into, finding themselves unable to keep that law. Now, there's something interesting about the example of Paul's life here. Now, Paul has told us about his conversion experience up to this point. He's told us about his life under the law. And one thing that we don't see any indication of, at least in what he's telling us, is that prior to his conversion, we don't hear him speak about wrestling with a sense of despair, uh, that, the, that I, I keep finding myself unable to keep the law. He seemed to have, think, have, thought, have, have been thinking that he was doing quite a good job keeping the law. Right? You remember chapter 1, verse 15, as he speaks about what happened to bring this change, he said it this way. He said, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. You remember when we saw that? This is what he credits for his 
understanding in his coming to Christ, not his own sense of despair. And that tells us something important about salvation. Our consciences convict us. Even unbelievers have consciences that convict them. Our efforts fail us. But here's what we can tell. Unless the sovereign God shows us the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ as the means of justification in his sight, we will not come to him. We depend on him entirely from beginning to end for our salvation. And Paul says here to Peter, representing, of, uh, representing each believing Jew in their situation, he says, God has opened our eyes to find in Jesus the perfect righteousness that God requires. And so then he says to Peter, what then have we done? Right? Uh, we Jews who God has shown the sufficiency of Christ what have we done as a result of that sight, as a result of that revelation? Look now at the second half of verse 16. He says, essentially, knowing this that God has revealed to us, what did we do? Here's what he says. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. In other words, as Jews, our response to what God has revealed about His Son has been this. We have believed in Christ to be justified. And in so doing that, we have ceased seeking to relate to God through our law-keeping. Here's a way we could put this. In so doing, Peter, or in so doing, believing Jews, here's what we've done as Jews. We have self-consciously chosen to no longer seek to relate to God by means of the Mosaic Covenant. We saw several weeks ago the danger of taking something intended to be temporary and making it permanent. Paul is saying, we have seen what God is bringing us in Christ. We've seen that the law cannot justify, and so we have now ceased seeking to relate to God by means of the Mosaic Covenant. If, if I want, this is true any time. If I want to seek God, I seek God on His terms. Right? How else am I going to seek after God and find Him? And before Christ came, that meant uniting myself to the Old Covenant community. Because this was the place that God had uh, given revelation of Himself. There, one found the advantages that God had given to men that pointed them to the Messiah. In Romans 9, 4, Paul says of Jews, he says, To them be belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So no small benefits. If I want to seek God, I will only ever find Him through His Son. And before that Son came, I would only hear of Him. I would only hear of His promises. I would only see the pictures and shadows of His offices and His work by membership in the Mosaic Covenant community. And so I would put myself under the law covenant as God commanded me to. But see, Paul says to Peter, what have we done now, Peter, now that Messiah has come? We have seen that things have changed. And we've essentially done what John the Baptist's disciples did. Do you remember 
the events with John the Baptist and his disciples. In John 1.37, we have a picture of John the Baptist standing there with two of his disciples. And Jesus walks by, the one that John has been telling them about. And John says, the Lamb of God. And what do his disciples do? Well, they stop following John the Baptist immediately, and they follow Jesus. That's what they do. Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11, he said, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's not saying anything there about John the Baptist not being a believer in God's promises, not being saved. He's making a covenantal distinction. John the Baptist is the last of the old covenant prophets. And when Christ comes... You walk away from John the Baptist, and you follow the one that he was pointing to the whole time. That's what you do. And that's what Paul and Peter have done. They have stopped seeking to relate to God through the Mosaic Covenant, and have, in contrast to that, put their faith in Jesus Christ, in his finished work, as the means of relationship with the Father. Now that leads us to the last thing we need to see this morning relating to the law, and we see it in this latter third of verse 16. Here's what else we learn about the law in Paul's statements here. Now, I'm going to say this and then read uh, the end of this verse, and we'll have some, we'll have some talking to do here. <laughs> here's what we see from Paul. Uh, he's telling Peter, in departing like this from the law covenant, we are fulfilling the law covenant. That's what we're doing. He says in verse 16 to end there, he speaks of faith in Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ, he says, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Now you say, well, how on earth, Blake, does that speak to them fulfilling the law covenant? Well, to understand what he's saying here, you simply need to understand that Paul is quoting the Old Testament here. He's pointing us back to the Old Testament in this statement. When he writes, by works of the law, no one will be justified. He's referencing the words from David. You, there's no quotation marks probably in your Bible because he's not directly quoting. He is alluding to. He's doing what he does oftentimes. Generally quoting, paraphrasing, uh, taking this idea and then putting it into his context. There's no doubt, although it's not a direct quote, there's no doubt that he is doing this intentionally. He's pointing us to David's words in Psalm 143. Now he, as I said, it's not exact what he's doing there, but there, no one disagrees that he has Psalm 143 in mind very intentionally as he does this. And it, we're not going to take time to, to lay that out, but if you are fast... And if you're interested to understand more of why we see this connecting to Psalm 143, then when we're finished, you can be the first one into the library. And there's a book there written by Beale and Carson, Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament, all right? Page 790, four pages there, making abundantly clear. No, he, he is clearly talking here about what David said in that, in that psalm. So we'll see who's, who's fastest on their feet here if you're interested in that. But notice then what he's doing. Paul is pointing to a writer of Old Testament Scripture. Pointing us to David. A man that Acts 2.30 calls a prophet. 
and in fact a king with a unique relationship to God. He's pointing us back to what that man wrote as that man told the Jews that they were not going to find justification by the works of their current covenant membership. He points to the Old Testament to prove what he is saying here uh, to Peter. In other words, when God revealed this to us in Jesus Christ, He was not revealing something that was foreign to the revelation in the Old Testament. And I'll ask you just, I think for the last time here, to turn to the book of Romans. There's something else I want you to see there. You'll notice in uh, many of these weeks going forward how much parallel there is between what he's saying in Galatians and what he says in many places in Romans. Look at Romans 3, 21. Let me read 21 and part of 22. He says this. He's just been speaking, by the way, about how no one's justified through the law because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now notice that he's talking about justification. Here he just said in verse 20, By works of the law no flesh will be justified. This is the context of what he's saying. And do you see in verse 21 that he says that this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. And then he also says, now, listen, although it's been manifested apart from the law, this righteousness didn't come through the law, but the law and the prophets bore witness to it. The law and the prophets is his sh common shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament bore witness to this coming righteousness, the verse 22 righteousness, the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, jump down to verse 31. Here's his conclusion. This is just amazing. You can sense the questions that he'd be getting <laughs> as he brings this up. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, he says, we uphold the law. And the ESV gets that exactly right in terms of how they're defining this word uh, and what they choose to render as uphold. The, the Greek word behind that is like most words, it has more than one possible meaning to it, several definitions, and they make the easy and correct choice here when they render it uphold. Can I read to you the dictionary definition of that word uh, that they're getting the idea of uphold from? Here's what that word means. To validate something that is in force or in practice. To reinforce the validity of. To uphold. That's one definition. Uphold in that sense to validate something that is in force or in practice. The point is this, the law had never promised spiritual life to sinners. It had made provision for life in the land God gave them, with ceremonies that made it possible for God to dwell in their midst in this temporary way through the temple. But its purpose in terms of salvation was not to give salvation, it was to point them to the coming Messiah. That was its purpose. It spoke of Him. It promised Him. It pictured Him. It gave the picture that went all the way back to Abraham. Believe God's promise, and it will be credited to you as righteousness. 
This is what the law bore witness to, he said there in verse 21. And to such an extent was that the intended purpose of the law covenant the whole time, that when Christ comes and we trust in him alone, departing from that covenant into the new covenant, we are in fact reinforcing all the validity that that old covenant ever had to begin with. We're upholding the very purpose for which it was given in the first place. You see what he, the point that he's making? When, when Jesus comes, you walk away from John the Baptist. And if you don't, if you, if you follow John the Baptist, and Jesus comes, and you don't walk away from John the Baptist, you are in fact invalidating John the Baptist's message that he has been preaching the entire time. This is marvelous. It's a beautiful plan that God has had for his people from the beginning, to unite in an unbreakable bond that centers around our union with his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So for Peter to act like old covenant realities were necessary to have Christian fellowship with him. But to quote James, these things ought not be so. Now let's close here with just a few quick points of application, three of them. Two of them have to do with how we read our Bibles. Uh, application in a hermeneutical sort of way. Number one, just in terms of our understanding of Scripture and of the experience of these, of these men and women living in these times, I hope we come away with a greater sense of just what a transition the apostles and all of the first century believing Jews had to go through. They had to wrap their minds around the notion of walking away from a God-given means of being in fellowship with Him. You could say dying to the law by understanding that fulfillment of that law had come and required now a new covenant relationship. I think the more we get that, the more we, that their wrestlings, which are deep and tremendous wrestlings like we see in the book of Acts, the more that those wrestlings will make sense to us. Number two, in this sense, God, I hope we see that God's plan for his people is singular. It has always only offered salvation through his son. And everything that he has done, he has done to that end. With the cross in mind. With the summing up of all things in Christ in mind, as he says in Ephesians chapter 1. When we come at the Old Testament with the person and work of Christ in mind, we're in fact giving validation to the very purpose for which that Old Testament scriptures were given in the first place. It was centered around progressively revealing what Paul calls the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. We need to see his plan in those terms and thus read our Bibles in those terms. The last thing in terms of application, this is more of an exhortation for us to take and to go with from here. Surely, if, if, if what he said in verses 15 and 16 this morning are true, surely the proper response to this is to marvel anew at the perfections of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just exactly how perfectly did he live? How perfectly did he accomplish our redemption? Well, here's how perfectly, so perfectly, 
that the eternal destiny of each and every one of his people hangs on three words that would come from the lips of Christ. There with me. If those words be spoken of me, my eternal destiny is safe and secured and unable to be taken. That's how perfectly he has accomplished what he came to do. So may we take this opportunity this morning to renew our conviction in the knowledge that Jesus is our righteousness. I have no righteousness of my own to offer in the courtroom of God's justice. If there is no alien righteousness credited to me, I am undone. Jesus is our righteousness. And my friends, let us breathe the blessed sigh of peace and relief that comes from that understanding. By works of the law, no one will be justified. But who will separate us from the love of Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, we are again humbled at this revelation of what you have done for your people in your Son. We ask that you would cause us this week, amid any of the ups and downs that may come, the difficulties, the successes, Lord, help us to be a people more and more who gauge our lives in these terms and who live to bring honor and glory to your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction this morning. We'll be dismissed with the words of Galatians chapter 6, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We are dismissed. Go.